Welcome to another episode of Commuting the Cosmos. I'm your host, Samuel Hinton, and tonight we're going to the moon. In this episode, we'll be putting on our tinfoil hats and exploring the most common conspiracy theory I get asked about in my work. Did the moon landing actually happen? In 1994, 14% of American respondents to a Washington Post survey said that they weren't sure whether the moon landing was actually real. 9% said that it was possible that they didn't go to the moon. 5% were sort of on the fence. This number has actually continued to increase over the years, and it peaked in February 2001 after Fox aired Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon?, which was seen by around 15 million people and increased the skepticism in the moon landings to around 20%, which is an absolutely huge number for something so easily verifiable as the moon landing, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In fact, because this topic is so frustrating to me, I'm actually going to try and keep this fairly quick, otherwise I might literally explode. And I have actively been trying to avoid this for the past 26 years of my life. Generally, hoaxer claims fall into one of two categories. They either dispute the evidence to try and show it as a hoax, or to claim that the landing wasn't possible with the technology of the time. I find the evidential nitpicking side to be far less interesting than any potentially valid scientific concerns, so let's just get that out of the way to start with. One of the main claims focuses heavily on NASA photos, where people try and find oddities or things that they just don't expect to see in the photos and use that to claim that it was all a studio setup. For example, the photos that were taken on the moon have black crosshairs all over them in a regular grid interval. However, some of the photos that we see online seem to be missing this crosshair in bright objects. To which people say, hey, that can't be right, this must all be fake. Which makes me scratch my head because surely if it was fake they would still be using the same cameras and the crosshairs would still be there. But anyway, a very long and boring story short, the fact that you don't see crosshairs in some areas is because the photos that you see online are scanned. And when you have white areas on the scanning, it often gets overexposed and the very thin black crosshairs often get washed out by the white bleeding through. What a deep mystery. Or people look at the photos and say, hey, the quality of these is just too high. That can't be right for 1969. It's like, yeah, yes, well, because NASA only publishes the best photos, not the ones that didn't turn out so good. And remember, with analog photos, you can essentially scan the film in as high a resolution as you want. These aren't digital cameras. So again, you're left scratching your head over where exactly people are coming up with these weird ideas. People say, hey, there's an issue there in space, but there are no stars. And it's like, yes, but daytime still exists in space, and they weren't on the dark side of the moon. It's too cold there. They were in lunar daytime, and the cameras are set for daylight exposure so that you can see things without it just being a whitewash. Again, this isn't hard to explain. People say, hey, the shadows, they seem inconsistent from just the sun. Well, yes, and just like on Earth, light tends to bounce off bright objects, and if you look up in the sky, you'll notice the moon is, is pretty white. You know, light bounces off it quite well, and that gives you multiple shadows. People say, hey, there are too many photos, there's more than one a minute. 
Well, yes, there were two cameras, and each camera could do two photos per second, so the fact that there's more than one a minute isn't too surprising. It's not as if they were there just to kick back and relax. They had jobs to do, and they were using those cameras pretty often. I remember seeing in a forum one image where someone had zoomed in to absolutely minute detail on a rock right next to the astronaut's foot. And there seemed to be a little C written on the rock. And they, were, they were convinced that this was proof that it was a prop rock that had been labeled with the letter C. Someone had like gotten a pen and drawn the letter C on. And I'm not quite sure why you would need to label your rocks with alphabetical letters, but that's fine. That's fine. We can go to the original photos and try and zoom in a bit more. And wait, wait, it's not on the original photos. Oh, it's, it was a hair in one of the, the later scans. So again, it doesn't seem like anyone that is sort of throwing these details out there to try and claim that the moon landing was a hoax has bothered to investigate this in any detail. It, it's not evidentially based. It's, it must be based on something else, but let's not go there just yet. And one of my favorite little nitpicks comes from someone who said, well, how did they film Neil Armstrong then? If he was the first person to walk on the moon, how can he be filmed from outside unless there's someone holding a camera? So let's just assume the moon landing was fake. How many people are involved at NASA and not one of them possibly thought, Hey guys, we've got Steve filming this from outside. Uh, is, is this all right? I mean, obviously NASA isn't stupid. So how did they overlook this massive, massive issue? Well, it might just be that there was a camera on the lunar module itself and it can be deployed before you actually have to walk around. And yes, there is a camera on the lunar module. It's in the modulized equipment stowage assembly so uh, it's not exactly another thing to scratch your head over. And hopefully you can hear my confusion mounting as I sort of go through these talking points which have been thrown at me time and time again, and it's because none of them are particularly good. Let's just stop with the nitpicking stuff and just move on to the slightly more interesting scientific queries that people have about this. The number one scientific dispute that I have heard is simply about radiation. You know that the further you get out of Earth, or I guess the, the less atmosphere you have, the less protection you have from radiation. It's why catching a flight from London to Melbourne gives you a radiation dose of around 40 microsieverts. This isn't much, so there's no real issue flying backwards and forwards as much as you want. However, it is more than you would get at sea level if you simply stood in place for the same amount of time that you would be flying. The higher you go, obviously, the more radiation you get. To help put things in perspective, we can just do some basic comparisons. You go to the dentist to get an x-ray done, you've got five microsieverts. You just chill on the ground doing absolutely nothing, in 24 hours, you've had 10 microsieverts. If you go to hospital and have a chest CT scan, you'll be getting around 7 millisieverts. And the maximum yearly dose permitted for US radiation workers is around 50 millisieverts. Now, obviously 50 millisieverts isn't going to be pushing the limit because of safety reasons. So if you want to exhibit radiation poisoning by getting a dose of radiation in a relatively short time, you'll be needing to look at around 400 millisieverts. 
So that's sort of the upper limit of where we should be going before we say, hey, there might be an issue here if the astronauts are getting a dose in far excess of this. And if anyone's looked it up by now, the radiation dose expected for astronauts to have on a trip to the moon and back is only around 10 millisieverts. So that's far less than the maximum yearly dose for a US radiation worker in a year, and essentially the equivalent of one and a bit chest CT scans. So not exactly the doom-like figure that you might have expected if you were listening to the people that were claiming it's simply not possible. And this is obviously because of fantastic radiation shielding built into the lunar module by NASA. So fun fact, there are actually two different sorts of radiation you need to be protected from if you go into space. There's radiation from solar activity, which is essentially just a barrage of protons, but it's low enough energy that the structure of the spacecraft shields the astronauts. And then there's cosmic rays, and these are particles near the speed of light, also mostly protons, but also a bunch of neutrons, that have phenomenally more energy than radiation from solar activity. And whilst the low energy particles can be absorbed by simply the shell and protective layer of the spacecraft itself, cosmic rays need a bit more to stop them. You could have them absorbed by the shell of the ship, but then you would need a very thick shell or materials that are better at absorbing cosmic rays. For longer journeys like that to Mars, we would need better materials. One material which is actually fantastic at absorbing radiation is water. You can, if you wanted to, and I do not recommend it, fill an Olympic swimming pool with radioactive waste. So that is, take those big oil drums filled of nasty uranium products, cover them in concrete so that they're not leaking into the water, and then put them at the bottom of the swimming pool. So long as there's a meter or so of water between you and the barrels, so don't dive down, you can easily swim along the surface of the water without sustaining any radiation poisoning or radiation sickness, simply because the water is so good at absorbing everything that hits it. Unfortunately, water is really heavy, and so taking a spacecraft and trying to wrap it in a meter-wide ring of water is just not feasible. So if we want to go a bit lighter, polyethylene is actually another fantastic absorber of radiation. The moral of this story here is that lots of hydrogen in the substance is actually really good. You can try and combine water and polyethylene into a material that's been developed at the Langley Research Center, which is one of NASA's facilities, and this is called hydrogenated boron nitride nanotubes, or BNNTs for short. Boron is also good, hydrogen is good, and together essentially these nanotubes capture water and there have been very promising results as to their radiation absorbing capacities, so the future is looking good. And one really nice thing about this material, assuming that we can get this to work properly in every scenario, is that it's flexible. The nanotubes aren't rigid or crystalline, so you can actually weave it into clothing, and that makes it really cool because what if you can make it into your spacesuits? Then the spacesuits themselves can be thinner and have even better radiation shielding, which will be needed if you go to a place like Mars and to walk outside for a while. Alright, so that's a very, very, very simple look at radiation shielding, and let's just move right along before I use the whole 20 minutes just talking about that. 
So another concern with radiation is that the camera film couldn't handle it. It would get fogged and you would see artifacts from these cosmic rays. And this is an absolutely true point. If you took that film out and you just held it around as you walked, it would be ruined. Luckily, this is a very well-known problem, and so you simply put it in a metal container, and you're done. You're good, you put it in the metal container, you put that back inside the lunar module, and it's perfect. Another interesting scientific thing that a lot of people get confused over is the temperature of the moon. Because the landings are done in lunar daytime, which is just after lunar dawn, so right after it starts to heat up, people say that it's simply too hot for it to be possible. After all, the moon goes from negative 173 degrees centigrade to 100 degrees centigrade when it goes from night to day. So how could astronauts possibly survive 100 degrees centigrade, which is around 210 degrees Fahrenheit if you happen to be one of those good old imperial loving folks? And the answer to this question is actually fairly interesting. So here's a question for you. Would you rather A, stick your hand in a boiling jug of water, which is at 100 degrees centigrade, or stick your hand in an oven that's heated up to 300 degrees centigrade? I certainly know that I would pick the oven. In fact, I've done this before. Every time the oven has been on and I open it and then I take something out, I know that the air in there is extremely hot and yet I'm not getting burnt. And I know that if I stuck my hand in boiling water, I would be burnt instantly. So what's the difference here? The air is hotter than the water, so why is it? Why is the air fine? And the answer to this is simply that the air has much less energy in it. The water is denser, it holds more heat, and more importantly, it transfers that heat very quickly. Air doesn't hold much heat, it doesn't transfer much heat, so the fact that it's so hot doesn't really matter. The same is true with the moon. Even if the surface of the moon is quite hot, the only thing touching that are the soles of the astronauts' very, very thick boots. There's no atmosphere on the moon that's also hot that is therefore conducting energy into them. It's solely from the ground. And unless they start rolling around on the ground just for fun, they're really not going to notice the fact that it's so hot at all. In fact, it's actually a common problem for things like the International Space Station and astronauts out there that you have too much heat. So if there's no air to heat you up, there's also no air to cool you down. And that means that if you start generating heat, as the human body is wont to do, you have to be able to get rid of it. And if you can't blow on your arm to cool it, you can't wave your hands around, you have to radiate that heat away as light. In the infrared, you've seen those night vision thermal goggles, that's how you cool down in space. It's not very effective, and so heat management is one of the primary concerns for a lot of space-based activities. Hopefully that's a little interesting tidbit that you can take forward. One of the other things is that the flag was fluttering, and how can there be a flag fluttering if there is, in fact, no atmosphere on the moon? And the answer is because there's no atmosphere on the moon. Air, when it's windy, will serve to cause things to ripple, but because air is everywhere, it also acts to dampen the, I guess, oscillations of other objects. If you have a Newton's cradle or a pendulum and you let it go, the reason it stops is because air induces drag and it slowly slows down. There's no air and you had a pendulum on the moon, 
it would still be swinging back and forth. So even a little bit of momentum to start with, without that easy dampening, takes a long time to come to rest. So there's that. In fact, there's a Mythbusters episode where they explicitly debunk this. They also go on to debunk allegations that the landings were filmed in the desert using harnesses or slow-motion cameras to make it look like they were in lower gravity, and they debunked claims that the footprints couldn't be well-preserved without moisture like there is on Earth. The long story short for that one is that because there's no atmosphere and weathering on the moon, the dust particles that they have there aren't round and smooth like we find on Earth. They're very sharp and jagged, and that means they can clump together and stick together very well, which allows them to preserve the sharp edges that you see without needing moisture. Anyway, let's take a little step back from this nitpicking and this bad science, and just look at this in general. The claim that the moon landing is a hoax is an extraordinary claim in and of itself, perhaps even more extraordinary than the actual moon landing. For example, hundreds of thousands of people worked on the Apollo projects. That's not an exaggeration, roughly 400,000 people worked on them for around a decade. And not one of them so far have managed to come forward and support the idea it was all a hoax. So this is fantastic dedication, but maybe that's just NASA. Maybe they've got all these people under wraps. But then we add on top of that the USSR. They tracked the Apollo spacecraft to the moon, they picked up the radio transmissions from the moon, and they published that the USA had men on the moon the day after it happened. This makes it an even more impressive hoax by NASA, getting the USSR on side to play it up too especially during the Cold War, when the USSR would have loved nothing more than to embarrass the United States by refuting the claims of the moon landing. On top of that, satellites like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, that's a NASA satellite, Chang'e 2, which is a Chinese satellite, Chandrayaan-1, which is an Indian satellite, and Selene, from Japan, have imaged the landing sites directly. So this is no longer just a hoax perpetrated by NASA, it's NASA working together with the USSR, China, India, and Japan at a very minimum, and they're all playing sport just to delude the populations of the world, which is very impressive. Another thing that a lot of people don't know is that we've been to the moon more than once. Everyone knows of Apollo 11 because it was the first trip, but there have actually been six manned moon missions, Apollo 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17, from the 20th of July 1969 to the 11th of December 1972. And some of them, like Apollo 11, 14, and 15, left behind things like retroreflectors on the moon so that we can bounce lasers off the moon to do some fun science, like observing how quickly the moon is infalling in towards Earth. Don't worry, it's not that quick. Like We're totally fine. And these are things that you can get simply from the Wikipedia page on the moon landing. These aren't controversial or well-hidden facts. They're just well-known facts if you have an interest in this topic. And the fact that they're essentially unknown to those that believe in the conspiracy theory is quite telling about the motivations of those people. And these motivations become a little bit more obvious if you find some to talk to. If you ask about other conspiracy theories, it's very rare to find someone that thinks the moon landing is a hoax that doesn't also buy into other conspiracy theories. The one that I've found most closely linked with the moon landing hoax is those that believe that 9-11 was an inside job by the government. 
And this probably leads back to the mindset that you need to adopt these sort of conspiratorial views, which is when a person gets emotionally invested because these conspiracy theories allow them to feel special because they're one of the few people who have managed to see through the curtain of lies spread by government and big organizations. Or as political scientist Michael Barkin discusses, there are three main appeals to conspiratorial thinking. The first is it makes sense out of a confusing world because they offer simple solutions. The moon landing is complicated, it's a technological feat, and it's very difficult to understand every individual aspect of that if you don't have the background. Which makes it so much easier to think that hey, it's just staged like a movie because gosh darn it, I do know about movies and I know what you can do these days with them. The second reason is that it allows evil in the world to all be linked to a single entity, and this is again simplifying the world. Evil in this case might not be the right word for here, but you'll notice with the correlation between moon landing hoax believers and 9-11 believers, the common thread here is that the government is out to delude the masses, and you are one of the few people who have managed to see through it. And this ties in with Barkin's third point, that conspiracy theories are presented as special or secret knowledge, and those that penetrate those secrets can feel good about themselves as they are the intelligent, discerning citizens and not one of the brainless sheep fooled. On that note, there's an interesting paper by Dagnall in 2015 showing that conspiratorial thinking is correlated with positive symptoms of schizotypy, which are the characteristics related to psychosis, especially schizophrenia, and the best predictor of belief in conspiratorial theories being delusional ideation. This helps us understand how people that believe in one conspiracy theory often buy into others. It's the same form of thinking that validates all of them. But I feel like I'm going a bit too deep here, especially because my field of expertise is astrophysics, I'm not a psychologist, and this research here is something that I am not an expert in. So take it with a grain of salt, if you will. The takeaway for this section then is relatively simple. It's rare to find someone who thinks the moon landings are fake, simply because they have come across some misinformation on the internet and haven't verified that everything they've read is actually correct. In the majority of cases, it's part of a larger worldview which readily embraces conspiratorial thinking. As such, there's normally an emotional dependence on those conspiracy theories being true, and so any sort of confrontational discussion which is fact-based tends to only reinforce their belief in the conspiracy theories. This is the same for religious or political beliefs, which are also tied to foundational worldviews or emotional topics. Providing refuting facts does not convince people they are wrong. Confirmation bias kicks in, defensive mechanisms spring into force, and their beliefs strengthen to withstand this offensive assault. So if you strike up a conversation with someone in this category, I like to ask a lot of questions as to why they believe. This is simply so I can try and understand it, and get to, I guess, know their thinking a little bit better. I might then ask how they explain or rationalize certain things, for example the multi-country cover-up, but for the most part, seeking to change their views is a difficult task that's simply not worth it. So whenever you get into these sort of discussions, if you do, I mean, I know I do a lot, but this is my field, so perhaps this isn't something that everyone gets into, just go in there trying to understand them not change their beliefs. You'll both have a much better conversation, you'll get much more out of it, and you won't come out of there very angry and frustrated like I used to when I was brand new to the field. Anyway, bringing everything 
back to the, the central idea of the fake moon landing. I hope that this has been a useful look at the sort of nitpicking or scientific disagreements that some people have with the moon landings. And hopefully now, if you come across this in the future, you're better equipped to be able to explain why they're not quite as big a problem as many people think they are. So rest assured, the moon landing definitely happened. We can verify this a hundred ways. In fact, soon maybe we'll be going back to the moon because a permanent moon base has been proposed to NASA. So exciting times might lie ahead. Just give it a decade or two. Hopefully I'm still around by then. If I'm not, I'm going to be very angry with myself because wouldn't I just love to be one of those people up there? Provided that the internet is still good, of course, right? That's, that's actually a concern for me. Anyway, I think it might be a good place to leave it at this moment. Hopefully you'll join me again for the next episode. And like normal, if there's anything you want discussed or brought up or looked over, please just send through an email to commutingthecosmos at gmail.com or let me know through any other various channel you can find, which happens to have my name on it. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening.